I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians 4. Philippians 4. I was going to steal Casey's and just drink after him, but he took it down with him, so who knows what germs God's protecting me from in the sovereignty. Uh, We are going to read uh, verses 4 through 7, but have no fear. We will not return to verses 4 and 5. We will focus on 6 and 7, in case you were fearful of that. But we will begin by reading into the passage verses 4 and 5 and then cover 6 and 7 together this morning. Let's read now. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Well, that's our passage this morning. Uh, Again, I will read verses 6 and 7 to you. That's where we are. Be anxious for nothing. Thank you, Justin. It's very kind. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's begin this morning then with a little exposition. Let's make sure we know and understand what the verses say. The word anxious is synonymous with the word worry. So if your translation says worry, when we read be anxious for nothing, we may as well read don't worry about anything. And yes, that is what the verse is telling us, not to worry about anything, which is hard to imagine, a life where we don't worry about anything. So, I think because of the difficulty of that statement, Paul immediately follows by saying, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, Paul is not saying you don't have anything to worry about. It's not what he's saying. Actually, there is a lot in life for people to worry about. There is a lot for us to experience anxiety over, but rather than worrying, it says here, we should pray about the difficult things in life, being thankful while we pray. The Apostle Paul then takes a very different approach than the Grammy Award winner, I hear some of you chuckling, Bobby McFearing, In his 1988 hit song, and yes, I had to look both of the name and the year up, but I knew the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I will confess that Don't Worry, Be Happy is the only line of the song that I knew until I looked it up. When I looked it up, I found that the lyrics were no more helpful than that sentiment. Here is a sampling from the song. I'll just read it. I will spare you the singing Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Never had that happen before. That would be alarming. Don't worry, be happy. The landlord says your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no cash, ain't got no style, ain't got no gal to make you smile. But don't worry, be happy. 
Because when, here's the reason now, when you worry, your face will frown, and that will bring everybody down. So don't worry, be happy. Now, it's a catchy song, uh, but simply telling people not to worry does not actually offer much relief. And telling them to just be happy is also unhelpful. They may very well ask, be happy about what? Because none of those circumstances sounded particularly promising. It's also not lost on me that the reason in the song that we are given for not worrying is that it will cause us to frown and it will bring others down. Which... I mean, is not exactly a heart of compassion towards those who are in difficult circumstances. Hey, man, stop worrying. You're making the rest of us less happy, okay? And I mean, it's a silly song. Um, and l lest you say this morning, why is he spending valuable minutes on a dumb song? I will tell you that McFerring wrote the song after seeing a poster from a uh, Indian guru, India Indian, not Native American Indian, who coined the phrase, don't worry, be happy, and put it in all of his writings and developed quite a following among the rest of the Western world as an Indian mystic with the phrase, don't worry, be happy. He used the expression among all of his followers until his death in 1969. So this is actually a proposed spiritual solution to worry that became very popular before it became a silly song. The song, coincidentally, for all of its silliness, and this is hard to imagine, may perhaps you remember, was the official campaign song of the first President Bush's candidacy. I can just imagine that song ringing in the background of a, of a campaign gathering. It's the first President Bush. It didn't stay that way because McFearing said, I'm a Democrat, and they had to change the song. But anyway, it's more, more history than you need. With all of the popularity and the silliness of the song, we have to admit it's popular because there is something compelling about the idea that worry is not healthy for us while being happy is of great benefit to us. But in Philippians, we get the real spiritual truth behind these two ideas. We are told to rejoice in the Lord always. Even in the midst of great sorrow, as we have expressed, this is not the instruction of be happy, don't be sad. No, this is in your sorrow, rejoice in the Lord. Always. And that's a better counsel to someone who is experiencing great trouble or great sorrow than simply saying, hey man, just be happy. No. It's far better to tell someone, brother or sister, in the middle of your sorrow or your trouble, in the depth of your sadness, or whatever you are wrestling with, you may find joy in the knowledge that the Lord is your shepherd, that God is not angry at you, that he loves you, and he will fulfill all of the good promises that he has made to you, no matter what you're experiencing right now. Rejoice in the Lord, even in your sorrow. That's a lot better than be happy so you don't bring everyone else down. We're told that worry Anxiety is not good that we should go to the Lord with it. The Lord who is with us, it's something to rejoice about. We should go to him in prayer, expressing, it says, thankfulness for his work in our lives. And that we should lay our concerns, our troubles, 
at the altar of God by describing them to our Father in prayer. Someone needs to write then a Christian song. I will leave this to the better people than me. Don't worry, be praying, which is more appropriate. Now Paul says in verse 7 that when we pray and lift up our concerns to God, God will give us a peace that the world does not understand. And He will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He does not say that when we pray, the Lord will deliver us from all of our troubles by making everything else better. He says that God will do two things. He will give us divine peace and He will guard our hearts and our minds. The word guard, incidentally, means to keep by military force, to prevent hostile invasion, just how you and I would use the word guard, which I take to mean that when we worry, aside from all of the health concerns that medical people warn us about under anxiety, aside from the stress that it puts in our bodies, worrying actually brings danger to our souls. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has promised us in this world, you will have trouble. That's John 16, You will have trouble. But in that same verse, he says, I have spoken unto you so that in me you might have peace. And that is <laughs> quite a thing to think about. That the Christian can have great peace, divine peace, supernatural peace, in the midst of great trouble. And the rest of the world will not understand that. And they will say, how in the world can you be so calm in the middle of what you're going through? I think of Job's wife who just tells him, just curse God and die. This is why Paul calls this peace that passes understanding. And it's this peace that we need because in Philippians 4, 7, it's God's peace that stands guard over our hearts and minds. We might think, well, it's God Himself that stands guard over our hearts and minds. And I don't think that would be inappropriate to interpret it that way. But the verse says that God's peace will guard our hearts and minds. It's His peace that prevents a satanic invasion of doubt and sin and temptation. In this world, you will have trouble. There will be troubling times and circumstances. We must pray and receive the peace of God or else we are in great danger in our troubling times. Well, that's the passage. You can all go home now. No, I'm kidding. Just joking. No, no, no. Seven things that I want you to remember from this, and I'll go through these quickly. Seven things I want you to remember from this. And these are things that I considered this week as I was looking through the passage. I want to emphasize them to you because I think they're worth you paying special attention to this morning. So seven things. Number one. Jesus knew what it was to be troubled. Jesus knew what it was to be troubled. Uh, to be anxious or to worry, those things are synonymous, but it's something different to be troubled. Um, it is not sinful to be troubled. The word troubled means agitated or bothered. He knew what that was like. In John eleven thirty three, 33, in John 12, 27, in John 13, 21, in the span of just three chapters, we are told that Jesus was troubled. And by the way, not just about going to the cross, he is troubled about different things in those chapters. Um, the word in the Greek, terasso, means be disturbed. to be It's like the, the waters that are troubled, to be uh, mixed up inside. It is very human to be 
disturbed, to be troubled. It is not sinful to be troubled. If it was sinful, then the Lord Jesus would not have been troubled. It's not sinful to be troubled. It is human to be troubled. To let troubling things cause you to worry or to be anxious or to be afraid, that is sinful. When we are troubled, we have to seek God's peace rather than worry. But it is not possible, brothers and sisters, to go through life without being troubled or disturbed. It is not possible. If it was not possible for the Lord Jesus, you will not find it any more feasible. You are not a struggling Christian because you are troubled. I hope that's a comfort to you. Jesus was troubled by many things. Many of the greatest Christian people that I've ever read about, if not all of them, Many of the greatest that the world has ever known were troubled people. You get a sense of this in Hebrews 11, where as it's walking through the hall of faith, as it's often called, you know, play on words of the hall of fame, we're told about these great Christian people, these great people of God in the Old Testament, but we're also told of the great difficulties they went through. They were troubled by missionary tasks. They were troubled by governments and laws, by, troubled by poverty, troubled, troubled by need troubled by persecution and trials, but they were also troubled by more common things to us. They were troubled by the hard-heartedness of people who were lost around them. It disturbed them that people could do and live and behave and, and act such a way. They were also troubled by the hard-heartedness of Christian people around them. Uh, John Calvin uh, famously pastored a church in Geneva. He was called there and just as famously, he was quickly dismissed and sent away. He was very relieved when he was sent away. All he really wanted to do was to isolate himself in study and prayer and work and teach. And so it was a great relief for him when they sent him away. And he uh, cried when they called him back. <laughs> and he wrote to a friend, I would sooner die than return. But he did return because to be a Christian requires kind of death. So there are many Christian people who are troubled by other Christian people, and, but they also experience common troubles of wanting a wife or a husband and not having one or having a wife and a husband and being concerned for their, their health or their safety or their spiritual life or where they're at right now. Common troubles, troubles for children's sake, troubles for children's children's sake. It is not evil to be troubled, and we need to be clear about that. You are not failing because you are disturbed by difficult things in the world. That's point number one. Point number two, Jesus is rightly concerned for our souls when we worry. He is rightly concerned for our souls when we worry. Worrying, of all things, is featured prominently in the Sermon on the Mount, it's also in Luke's gospel, which gives a version of the Sermon on the Mount that we assume Jesus preached regularly and routinely. It was called an itinerant message, which means he wasn't delivering an entirely new message every Sunday like, like I do. He was traveling around to a people giving the same gospel kingdom message over and over again because every crowd was full of people who hadn't heard it the previous week. He's itinerant preaching and worrying features prominently. Think about that. God sent his son to the earth to speak to us. And of all the things he spends precious vocabulary on, speaking to lost people, featured prominently is worrying. And again and again, he said, 
week after week, day after day. Do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a story of a man who receives a huge financial payday. You remember in Luke 12 what he does with his big payday? It says he built big barns uh, so that he could store up lots of grain. He didn't go out and buy a Ferrari with it. (laughs) The guy who comes to the huge payday built big barns so he could store up lots of grain so then he could say to his soul, soul, now you can take rest and you get the feeling that this is a man with a troubled soul. And he didn't, when he didn't have any financial resources to deal with it, you know, it was one thing, but now that he has a big financial payday, he says, my solution, what am I going to do? I'm going to store up everything so that I don't have to worry in the days to come about what I will eat or drink. And in Luke 12, that's the context of this parable. Jesus telling people, do not worry about what you will eat or drink. And maybe you've been asked a question like that before. What would you do if you won the lottery? I'd be very confused if I won the lottery because I don't play the lottery. But if I did come into a massive amount of money, what would I do? Maybe I would try to buy for myself all of the security that I need in life so I don't have to worry about the basics of life ever again. Have you ever thought like that? That's, That's the man in Luke 12. And it's possible that you're trying to do something like that even now. It's possible that scattered throughout the sanctuary, we have many people who are troubled by the the basic call to provide and that we are working very hard and saving very hard and investing very hard so that we don't have to worry. Brothers and sisters, in Luke 12, Jesus says, don't do that with your life. He's not saying don't work hard. He's not saying don't save anything. He's saying do not worry. And that's his conclusion of the story about the guy who comes into a lot of money. Jesus is rightly concerned for our souls when we worry and when we have anxiety because of the things that trouble us. Do not dismiss your worrying or someone else's worrying as no big deal. It is a big deal to Jesus. It is a big deal. When someone tells you, I'm really worrying about this. I'm, I, this is re- I, I'm really, don't dismiss that with a trite saying as if you were singing the song from the 1980s. Don't dismiss it when someone, when you are worrying, it is a big deal. And there is danger in that, so much so that the Lord Jesus himself is concerned. Third point, where you worry will tell you a lot about what you hold most dear. Where you worry will tell you a lot about what you hold most dear. As you deal with worry in your life, it will probably not take you very long to figure out that the things you worry about are the things that we hold most dear. And I'm telling you, be careful, brothers and sisters, that all of life's blessings don't become greater than the one who has blessed us. Oftentimes, not all of the time, but oftentimes, when we find ourselves worrying, we find ourselves afraid to lose something that God has not promised us we will keep. We are warned about treasuring these things on the earth by the Lord Jesus. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is right to say with Job, who lost his children, his possessions, and his health, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, 
and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is right to say with Job, whatever God has given me in life is just that. God has given to me. He's not promised me that I will keep it all. It was good of him to give. It is good of him to take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I don't know if there's a thing like instant replay in heaven. I hope there is. I hope there's a, a way in heaven to look back and see with my, own two eye, with my own two eyes things that I have only read about in the scriptures. I hope there is something like that as God, who is infinite, can traverse time and space. I would like to see the look, whatever it looks like, the reaction of Satan when Job says in Job 1, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I would like to see the defeat of the devil in the life of Job. Job's soul is in great danger. The devil himself has taken a personal interest in his spiritual downfall. If there was ever a time when the heart and mind of a person needed to be guarded, that's it. Talk about a hostile invasion. But the peace of God has a military guard over Job's heart and mind that surpasses even the understanding of his wife. Sorry, women. Oftentimes it is the other way around. But in the story, it is his wife. Fourth point, where others worry, the Christian prays. We don't need to belabor this, but we do need to take it to heart. Your solutions to your troubles. It's not wrong to be troubled. Your solutions to your troubles say an awful lot about what you believe. The praying person demonstrates in prayer that they believe in the power and the peace of the Almighty God, their Heavenly Father, who will supply all that they need. The unpraying person demonstrates they do not truly believe in that God as they should. Now, we have all, I am sure, and count myself among you, struggled with prayer in our lives. I will put myself at the top of that category of men who have wrestled with prayer. And I am not saying that if you struggle to pray, you are not a Christian. You don't believe in God but please hear this, a struggle to faithfully pray is a struggle of faith itself. A man or a woman who is not praying as they should is a man or a woman spiritually unhealthy and spiritually vulnerable. We must be praying people if we are people who believe in the God that we must be praying to. I urge you, to make a discipline in your life of prayer. I urge you, and I preach to myself. Fifth point, lack of gratitude is the first step to idolatry. This is not my point. This is a point made by Gordon Fee. He has an excellent commentary that I've told you I'm working through as I study Philippians. This is his point, and to make this point, he cites Romans 1.21. I looked it up because I wasn't sure about this point. Where do you get that, Mr. Fee? So I read the passage in Romans once again. He says in that passage, Paul, 
that although people knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for images of corruptible man and beasts. And what he is saying is they knew God. They did not glorify him as God. They were not thankful. And that lack of gratitude eventually came out as an expression of idolatry. If you believe that all good things come from God, then you will be thankful. If you are not thankful, perhaps you are denying, in a sense, that all good things come from God. And if God is not your God, you will replace Him with something else worthy of your glory and service and worship and attention in your life. So he writes, a lack of gratitude is the first step to idolatry. You can mull on that one a little bit. Sixth point. The peace of God is a promise in verse 7. When Paul writes, In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. He is not saying the peace of God might, if you are lucky, come and help you. It's not what it says. No, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Now, someone will say, well, I prayed, but I do not feel better. You ever been there before? I understand. I understand. This verse does not say that if you pray, you will feel better. Let's just be honest about that. That's not what it says. It doesn't say if you pray, then all of a sudden, miraculously, What's troubling you will no longer trouble you. That's not what it says. It says, God's peace will protect your heart and mind. Now, we're told in the Proverbs that that's pretty important. Proverbs 4.23, we are told, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Guard your heart. So the guarding of one's heart is pretty important. God's peace will be actively protecting your mind from the very thoughts that will lead you to fear and distress and ultimately sin and destruction, the thoughts that keep someone from trusting Him when you pray. Peace here does not mean rest from all your enemies, relief from all your trials, victory over all of your troubles. It means that when you pray, God will grant you the supernatural ability to trust Him in the midst of troubles. I believe this is a promise, and we should be praying without ceasing in light of this promise, which is 1 Thessalonians 5.17. We need to guard our hearts and minds, and the way to do that is to not avoid prayer. It is to be a disciplined, praying people, thanking God for what He has given us, blessing God, as Job does. If there was ever a man who needed his heart and mind guarded supernaturally, it was Job in that story. You need the same thing, brother and sister. You must be praying. Finally, point seven. We have peace it says here in the text, through 
Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus. So we're told at the end of verse 7. It is because of Jesus that we can pray to God without fear. It is no casual thing to approach the throne of God with something to say. That's no small thing. I mean, some of us are afraid to speak in public in front of other human beings. It's no casual thing to approach God's throne with something to say. But we are told that we can boldly approach the throne of grace because of Christ Jesus. It is because of Jesus that we can call God our Heavenly Father. By the work of Christ, He has given us the right to be called the children of God. So says the Scripture. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all of your cares upon Him. On what grounds can I unload all of my cares on the holy God of all creation? Peter says, because He cares for you. Praise the Lord in Jesus. Jesus has purchased that relationship with God for us, paying the redemption price of our sin in His own blood. This week as I was preparing, thinking, it's not easy to prepare a sermon, not that I'll complain about it. It was a good thing. I went through the text and I knew what it was saying, but then you need to kind of step away from the text and think, and think, and think. And as I was praying and thinking, the old uh, hymn came to my ears. As I worked through these two verses, I quickly messaged Nathan and said, we need to sing this hymn on Sunday. Not the brand new one, but the old, old one. What a friend we have in Jesus. And listen to the lyrics of this, of this hymn. Just, I'll just, do the first, just read the first verse to you. What a friend we have in Jesus. And I hear there at the end of verse 7, in Christ Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. We know that. We celebrate Jesus for that. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And then the lamentation of that song, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Walk away from. Leave in the cellar. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. As Peter writes to us, Cast all of your cares upon Him because He cares for you. If you are visiting with us here this morning, I want you to know that Jesus, this one who I speak of, is the Son of God who loves you and who gave His life for you. You are a sinner, but He is no sinner. He offered to pay the price of your sin to the Almighty God. He did so at the cross, and if you believe in the work that He has accomplished for you, you may know God and have this peace. You may know the Lord Jesus. He has risen from the grave. He is alive, and He is truly a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I'll leave you with Ephesians 2.14, where it says, Simply and clearly, for this man, for He, Jesus, Himself, is our peace. Now let me pray for you that we will know the peace of God.
Father, let us not this week forfeit our peace because of a refusal to follow the instruction and the counsel of your word. When we know trouble, please guard our hearts and minds from the temptation of sin and doubt and unfaithfulness. Bring us as the good shepherd might poke and prod a sheep to our knees so that we may pray to you so that we may experience a peace that passes understanding and in that peace protect us from the evil one. Protect us from falling. Keep us from the destruction of our sin and doubt. From the insecurities that drive us to take personal action that does not glorify you. Father, help us in our troubles. Help us. For we do have them. Help us to know you in the midst of those trials. To praise you. And to say with Job, blessed is your name. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.